Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday. Lots to talk about. We're going to get to the announcement made by TransLink and go through some of the finer points of that in just a few seconds. Also coming up on the program, are you concerned about your privacy when going to a restaurant, if you are going to go back to a restaurant and having to give one phone number from the group for contract? contact tracing should there be an issue down the road. That ties into what we're talking about after the 1.30 news and a new poll has some results on just who is most comfortable getting back to doing things like going to a restaurant or a hair salon. We're going to talk about that and get your feedback as well. But as you've been hearing in the news, some new procedures have been announced and they will have an impact on your daily commute if you are somebody who uses transit. And joining me to talk a bit more about what is going to be happening is Ben Murphy. He is a TransLink spokesperson. Ben, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. I think the one of the big changes that people are looking at and wondering about is the crowds, the crowd numbers on SkyTrain platforms. What is going to look different there? Yeah, so we're implementing a new policy, which uh, to start out is going to be at some of our busier stations, and it's going to limit access to SkyTrain platforms. And how we're going to do that is... When you arrive, you typically tap in at a Fairgate um, using a compass card or payment method. Uh, we're now going to have only one Fairgate sent to set to entrance only. The remainder will be exit only. Uh, and so that is going to mean that once our ridership builds back up a little bit to uh, more regular levels, you'll start to see people actually beginning to queue up outside of those Fairgates. And what that's designed to do, of course, is slow down the amount of people moving into the station, onto the platform and therefore onto the SkyTrain. So it's a policy that right now, given our ridership is still quite low, isn't going to have much of an immediate impact, but it will have an impact as the ridership starts to build back up and to ensure that people are distancing outside of those fair gates, we're installing decals and signage as well and we'll uh, have a station attendant uh, there as well to assist with that process. So uh, that's going to be a, a bit of a shift. It's going to be initially at Lowheed, King George and Surrey Central starting next week and then we'll make sure that the process is working well and then we'll look to roll it out more widely. And so the idea with that being there isn't physically somebody on the SkyTrain cars, so the only way to, to make sure they're not packed with people is to stop people from getting through the, the fare gate? Yeah, essentially. I mean, it's a measure to try and balance out the amount of people coming in. I mean, we've looked at all different options and ways um, to try and promote distancing. The one thing we're really cognizant of is we we don't want it to be the case that um, we're going to just move the problem to a different area. You know, you don't want to move, um, say, crowding on SkyTrain just onto the platform and suddenly you have packed platforms. So um, we thought this was a measure that we could implement relatively easy, um, not that hard for customers to um, understand, and it would help to sort of slow down the amount of people. So a practical measure that we think will have an impact. Do you have any idea then how much time that's going to add on to, say, the average commute? It's very difficult to say. Uh, I don't really have those estimates. Keep in mind, um, the fare gates will still move quite quickly because uh, typically a person taps through every two seconds or so on a fare gate. So you're still shuffling 30 people per minute through the single fare gate and providing you know, someone doesn't fumble with a compass card or something like that. But um, you are going to be keeping that line moving pretty quickly. Uh, but 
in those rush hours when you get you know a lot of people arriving at once it, it will slow things down so it might be that you don't catch the first train you might have to get the next train or, or perhaps the one after that if it's a really busy period all right. One of the other uh, issues or the other advice today is this idea of wearing a non-medical mask or a face covering while you're waiting or on board of vehicles. It's a recommendation at this point. So how how do you get the message out that out there that for everyone's safety to protect others around you, that's a good idea? Yeah, I, I think uh, part of that for us is launching a, an education campaign, and that's going to be starting over the next few weeks people will start to notice signage going up um, at stations on vehicles promoting the use of face coverings and masks as you say a big part of this is it's about protecting everyone around you Um, and if we could get um, everyone or nearly everyone on a SkyTrain car or a bus wearing these uh, face coverings then that will uh, help to keep transit safer for everyone. I think part of it too is a, a shift Uh, in how people uh, approach face coverings and how they perceive them on transit. And I think even today I took the SkyTrain and, you know, it was interesting, uh, around half of people or so were already wearing face coverings. Obviously, there's some more work to do, but um, I I think if you compared that to two weeks ago and two weeks ago before that, um, we are naturally actually seeing more people wearing face coverings and masks on transit. So that's something we're going to be more promoting. And I think it will come down to when you board a train, um, in, in time, if you're the only one on there that doesn't have a face covering on, you know, I do wonder how long it'll take people to think, well, maybe I should um, switch gears here and, uh, and I'll start to do that as well. Because broadly speaking, in British Columbia, most people do follow recommendations that are being put forward. Uh, so when you rode SkyTrain today, did you wear a face covering? I did. I did. It's a, uh, yeah, uh, not a very good one. It's a old rugby shirt, uh, which was cut up and had uh, straps put on it that my wife made. It's <laughs> not the most comfortable, but nonetheless, uh, it was a face covering. And so, so, and I think you're right, the more it, it has shifted, and especially since uh, Dr. Teresa Tam has now actually changed and said it's a good idea. And again, to protect those around you, it's not going to stop you from getting, but if everybody's wearing a mask, it stops people from spreading it. So why not make it, or are you waiting to see then how many people voluntarily buy into this idea? And if people don't, are there any plans to make it mandatory that you must wear a face covering to ride transit? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of mandatory, there are some real uh, problems we would encounter over how you would practically enforce that. Um, if, if someone refused to wear a mask, um, it's really unclear how, how we would enforce that in any tangible way, keeping in mind people, if they're refusing to wear a mask, aren't, aren't breaking any law per se. So what we think is the appropriate course for right now is uh, the carrot over the stick, trying to inform people about the benefits, why it's important, um, why it's about those around you and being a good a good neighbour on transit, essentially, for the person uh, sitting next to you or sitting close to you. So um, we think um, taking this approach, people will respond positively. Uh, and to that extent, that's the decision we're, we're moving forward with now. If public health, of course, changes their opinion and, and decides um, on that mandatory would be a, a good idea, then, of course, we would, um, we would listen to their advice and, um, and adjust accordingly. And you mentioned, too, there will be two-metre space decals at some of the bus stops and station entrances to help guide customers and show customers. And I would imagine SkyTrain, too, if you're waiting, you haven't gone through the restricted uh, fare gates. Uh, So are staff ready uh, to deal with that to help people? Because I can imagine once people start going back to work more, there's going to be stress. You're in a rush in the morning. You want to get going. I mean, is it staff's job to tell people, hey, you're too close or you shouldn't be bunched altogether like that? 
Well, I think our customer service staff already do a, a pretty good job of that. And yes, you know, part of it will be that they'll be uh, making sure um, our processes are followed. Um, the decals that we're installing too, just while we're on that, we put some new ones, uh, we're installing new ones on the platform. So when people exit a train, they're not immediately jamming into people who are trying to board the train. So we're sort of asking people to stand a little bit further back as well. Uh, but yeah, and the other thing too, and, and we're being pretty upfront about this, Jill, is that distancing isn't always going to be possible on transit. Um, there are going to be situations where it will be challenging. I'm sure you've seen, and all of us have seen over many years when we get a, uh, a technical issue or a weather event, um, you can very quickly in minutes see hundreds, if not thousands of people amassing at stations or, or platforms. Those situations are going to be really difficult to control. Uh, so uh, that's why this uh, mask and face covering piece is really so important because distancing, uh, unfortunately, will not always be uh, possible on transit, despite our, our best efforts and policy changes we're making. All right, uh, Ben, I, I just wanted to touch as well, you're upping cleaning, so people will likely see these kind of pit crews and people doing enhanced cleaning? That's right, yes. Yeah. So we've got uh, these pit crews who are going to be swarming uh, Skytrain cars. Initially, we'll have them at Waterfront, King George, and uh, riding between Commercial Broadway and BCC Clark. Uh, at, at most of them, because they're terminus stations, essentially when the train turns around, that's when the pit crews will board. Uh, they'll uh, spray down and wipe down with a hospital-grade disinfectant all the high-touch surfaces. Um, so part of it is obviously keeping the trains clean. The other part of it is some visibility because most of our cleaning happens overnight so customers can actually see that process and they know that we are uh, making those efforts to keep transit clean. All right. Uh, ben, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for taking some time with us today. No problem. Thanks, Jill. That is Ben Murphy, a spokesperson with TransLink. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, on Tuesday, some restaurants opened their doors uh, following the new rules that were laid out by our provincial health officer. If you went to a restaurant, you likely know there weren't very many people there because the tables all have to be two metres apart. They can't be there in groups of more than six people. But I know a lot of people were still very excited to head out and at least take part in some part of the reopening of the economy. There have been some discussions, though, and I think mainly online, about the one particular point, and that is one person in the group at least giving a phone number or giving that phone number to the restaurant for in case down the road somebody tests positive or there's a a possible chance that you are exposed to COVID-19. Well, let's bring in Kyla Lee, a lawyer at Acumen Law who has written a piece about this and is joining us to talk more about it. Kyla, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, You wrote uh, uh, a column about this, saying that this is not an invasion of privacy. So what is your response to people suggesting that giving over that phone number is just too much? Well, I mean, my response is that you're you're being a little bit ridiculous, unfortunately. The, The reality is that going to a restaurant is a privilege. Lots of people can't afford to do it ever. So you're lucky that you're in a position that you're able to do it. And having to give your phone number in the event that contact tracing is necessary is not a huge intrusion into any liberties that you have. You don't have a constitutional right to dine at a restaurant. And and the information itself, because I guess some of the concern was, oh, but if I give this my my phone number, I'm going to start getting calls, unsolicited calls or offers on my phone. I, I mean, I'm guessing that's what some of the concern was, but it's not as though restaurants can take that phone number and start doing that. 
No, uh, there's actually rules around this. So if there's a public health order that requires certain information to be collected, as there is in the case of restaurants obtaining contact information for one member of the party, um, it is an offense under the Public Health Act to use, disseminate, or publish that information for any purpose unrelated to the purposes of the Public Health Act. So the restaurant is only allowed to essentially store it and turn it over to the public health officer if they're asked to do so. Beyond that, they can't do anything with it. And the information itself then, so say, is the scenario being that you go to a restaurant, you hand over your phone number, then it would really be, the onus would be on you. So say you're the person that comes down with the coronavirus that that gets infected. You're still the one that has to tell the health authorities that you dined at that restaurant. And then it would be the restaurant, I guess, that would, would contact other people that might have been sitting nearby or could have been exposed? Yes, exactly. So you would contact the health authority or the health authority would likely contact you after your test came back positive. They would go through the places that you were in the days and the incubation period leading up to um, your diagnosis. And when you said the restaurant, they would then contact the restaurant and, and find out where you were seated and what, you know, who is at risk as a result of dealing with you. And again, I'm just I'm trying to figure out the outrage that some people have to this. So would the concern there be that they know who you are, the workers at the restaurant know that, oh, well, Jill Bennett was here and they are going to start telling people that that your personal information, your personal health information would be shared? The reality is that when the public health officials contact um, the restaurant, uh, they will just ask for all of the information and then they'll use it appropriately. So anytime they do this, and they've been doing this for ages in in the case of transmission of of, uh, sexually transmitted infections, where they do contact tracing for that to determine who your last sexual partners were. They protect your identity as much as they can so that it's not known that you contracted the coronavirus and that you possibly spread it at the restaurant. It's only known that somebody who attended the restaurant in this party of people uh, or is seated in this area um, was a person who was uh, who was infected. Mm. So do you think it, it then goes far enough that they're taking one phone number from a group? I think it, it, it does. I mean, the assumption is that if you're with a group of people and you're at a restaurant, you're likely familiar enough or, or close enough with them, particularly because we have just only mildly expanded our bubbles now, that you're going to be comfortable sharing that information with them. If we're expanding our bubble to include somebody we're going to a restaurant with, because of how little we can expand those bubbles at this point in time, most of us are expanding them to the people that we're closest with that we haven't been able to see. And presumably, if you yeah, if you like somebody enough that they're in your first phase of expansion and you're going out with them, we can make the assumption, I think, that you like them enough to protect them, that if there's an an exposure to the virus, you would want them to know. Oh, absolutely. Um, And, you know, I I think the people who are who are even still concerned about this after that, uh, to me, it comes off as incredibly selfish that you're not wanting to do a very small thing that probably won't impact you in any way, shape or form to protect the people, you know, and the people in your community. Uh, it also raises, and I think you've you've touched on this in the piece that you wrote, in that d- unless you live completely off the grid, you've probably done way more to share your information and share your private information than giving over a phone number at a restaurant. 
Yes, we give our information to the government all the time. If you've purchased insurance for your vehicle, you've given your phone number and your contact information to ICBC, who share it with the government, and that information can be accessed in police databases. If you get a driver's license or a health services card, you provide contact information to the government, including your address, and you're legally obligated to update that. So it's not as though the government doesn't know where you are or where you live and how to get a hold of you. Um, And most of the time, they already have your phone number because you've given it for your insurance or you've given it for a medical purpose. Uh, exactly. Uh, in your case, too, because you're in a bit of a, a, a different position in that we've talked to you before when you got COVID-19. And, and I remember you saying that you were pretty sure you had to have gotten it on at an airport or on a flight. It's unclear. So in that scenario, would, would the airlines have contacted? Was your case one that they would have gone and said, oh, there's possible exposure at these places? Not um, for my case, but where they had positive tests. Um, from people who were tested, who had been on flights. Um, anybody who was a positive test, they listed the affected seats and they published them on the BCCDC website with a list of flights. If you were seated in any of these rows, you could have been exposed to COVID-19. And so you should you know, contact your health provider and get a, a COVID test. So that information was already published. Up until there were too many flights and too much to manage, they were actually doing the contact tracing and contacting people using information, including phone numbers, that the airlines had collected. Right, which people uh, seem to have no problem handing that over even pre-COVID to fly. Well, exactly. And airlines are federally regulated and can be compelled to hand that information over to the government. What do you say, though, the the arguments I was seeing on this as well, people saying, well, it's not just the phone number, it's that this is one little step, and if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. But they're not going to take a mile. At the end of the day, if you really feel that this order is unjustified, you do have a legal remedy. You can file uh, an application in court to have the order reviewed by a BC court judge, um, and the judge can determine whether the order goes too far. So there is a mechanism in place to prevent government overreach. Uh, In my legal opinion, this would not be struck down as going too far. All right. Uh, Interesting uh, times and the fact that we're even talking about uh, this and the concerns with handing over a phone number. Uh, Kyla, thanks so much. Thanks for writing this and for joining us to talk about it. Thanks for having me. That is Kyla Lee. She is a lawyer in uh, Vancouver with Acumen Law. We're going to take a break, uh, have a listen to Reality Check, and then we'll open up the phone lines once again. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. If you've been following along what is happening in Hong Kong, there are concerns that there could be more backlash, that there could be new protests and demonstrations because of a move done by the Chinese government preparing to impose new national security legislation on Hong Kong. And there are many fears today that this will not only take away some of the freedoms in Hong Kong, uh, but could lead again to more demonstrations and uh, well more violence let's bring in mabel tongue spokesperson with the vancouver society in support of the democratic movement and mabel joins us on the line now thank you so much for taking time with us oh thank you for having me Uh, what is your concern so far or perhaps the biggest concern right now with what we're hearing about uh, what the chinese government is doing uh, in in regard to hong kong now, first of all, let me explain to you what this law really means. That when I look at that book that says that this law shall enact laws on its own to prohibit an act of treason, uh, deception, sedition, and subversion against the central people's government, 
or action or crimes during state secret and to prohibit foreign political organization or bodies from conducting political activities in the region and to prohibit political organization or bodies of the region from establishing ties with foreign political organization or bodies. So this law really affecting the human rights movement in Hong Kong at all. And also, as you know, as you may know, this law put Nobel Peace Prize laureate Liu Xiaobo in jail for 11 years. So you know how important this law affecting, you know, the Hong Kong people. And, and I'm reading people's accounts of this and reaction to this. And I mean, the, the statements that I'm seeing online are, are people tweeting and saying Hong Kong, as we understand it now, has died, that this this is the death knell of Hong Kong. Do you think that is that an overstatement or is that summing up what's happening? No, not at all. This is really happening because um, um, Hong Kong is a global financial city. You know, you have to have one country to system to have the autonomy to maintain this financial situation. But uh, right now, we just put one country to system into one country, one system. It definitely would wound Hong Kong's reputation as a financial center and its high degree of autonomy. So this is I, I think the, the, the comment that, you know, people make uh, is really, really telling what's going on. And do you think is is the Chinese government taking advantage of the global pandemic, doing this in hopes that people aren't paying attention? What's happening there right now? Yes, it really it happened because you know this uh, because of the uh, 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 this this pandemic situation that are not allowing uh, the Hong Kong people to uh, do a lot of protest and there's a restriction um, people can gather in Hong Kong. So um, they just take away some of the, um, uh, the, 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 the the gathering power, as you say, because, um, you know, I mean, if a lot of people showing up to so, uh, to show solidarity, it, it can tell to Hong Kong and also around the world what's happening. But now um, they take away that uh, that um, that uh, 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 that action uh, because I'm seeing from people too saying I'm posting this on on Twitter or I'm posting this on Facebook and and saying others don't have that ability anymore that that ability has been taken away for those who are uh, opposing the government. Yes, they definitely take it that way. So, but I, I'm sure uh, uh, a lot of things will happen in the next few days, not just in Hong Kong and also around the world. Um, a lot of organizations they really pay attention to Hong Kong and uh, to also stand with Hong Kong, uh, organizing some either events or um, uh, making statement or um, um, they are brainstorming. So I'm sure a lot of things will happen in the next few days. How concerned are you, though, on what could be happening right now to uh, the pro-democracy uh, demonstrators and those who have been fighting for democracy, been fighting to keep the one country, two systems in place? Um, I'm very concerned because look at what's happening in the last few weeks and um, that uh, the most peaceful demonstration is considered uh, as a crime. So you can see um, uh, what's happening to Martin Lee, um, the the uh, the father of democracy, and and he with other prominent um, um, figure um, 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 in Hong Kong, like the, the Apple Daily Media tycoon uh, Jimmy Lai and Lee Chao Yan and uh, Margaret Ng, a lot of really prominent um, figure that will be arrested because of the peaceful demonstration they were in. Um, so, 
So they really violate um, the, the constitution of the right of Hong Kong people with the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. And uh, that was uh, promised to them um, by uh, the, the declaration that uh, with uh, uh, joint declaration by British and uh, um, China. So um, those rights are taken away. So there's no freedom of speech, freedom of um, assembly anymore in Hong Kong. Uh, the South China Morning Post uh, earlier today reported as well that Beijing is intending to act uh, to amend the appendix of the basic law that contains a Chinese law now enforceable in Hong Kong. What would you like the international community to do or what kind of a response do you think we need from other governments around the world? I, I think um, um, the, all the other countries that we um, share our, our our universal value that should um, you know should uh, join together um, to issue a strong statement against um, um, the Chinese government and ask them to withdraw this national security law. Um, and uh, we we need to also reassess the uh, the trade agreement with China as it is clear that China is not honoring honoring uh, the international agreement. Um, and so. You know, we 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 have to be um, um, really restricted to um, um, to the Chinese investment in our country, and also I think we should warn our citizens to the risk to invest in China as well. And how confident are you if we're looking at Canada? I mean, our government, our federal government, has been very reluctant to even question China's handling of the pandemic, of the virus. They've been very hesitant to say anything negative. How confident are you that they will take up this cause or at least question it? I, 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 I'm confident with um, the Liberal government and also the people that have the power, um, or the voting power we have. Uh, because we can really um, stand with, um, uh, with Hong Kong by um, telling our MP that, you know, we really, really, really have to um, take, pay attention to what's happening in Hong Kong. Because you're also affecting our Canadians. We have over, over 300,000 people uh, in Hong Kong, um, living in Hong Kong right now. And the safety will be, uh, will be really concerning. Um, I, I think we also, our government need to uh, invoke the Medisky law um, that um, can, um, you know, to um, to restrict the entry of individual and corporation that involve in any human rights violation and freeze their financial asset. But last, but last but not least, that you know, one thing is really important: we, we should grant the asylum a claim by the Hong Kong protester. Because I think they are really those people that are really brave to really uh, are stood up to um, something that they believe that believe in the the freedom and the democracy in Hong Kong. All right, Mabel, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for taking some time today. Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, there's certainly a lot of debate on the return to school for kids in the younger grades, for high school students. We know in places like Ontario, it's not happening until the fall. Still going ahead June 1st on a staggered and part-time basis here in BC. So if you are a parent, are you concerned about what impact returning to school could have on the psychology of your child? Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Bonnie Ledbeater, a psychology professor at the University of Victoria. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for asking me. How concerned should parents be of, uh, of what kind of an impact this will have if, if their children are returning to the classroom? 
Well, I think um, children are, are pretty predictable, and um, there may be a great deal of differences in, in the way they return. It's a bit like the first day of school, right, for many children. They've been off for a couple months, but um, how your child usually responds to these transitions is probably how they're going to respond. So the kids who are excited and moving forward will be excited and, you know, anticipating their peers and their teachers and um, what they'll learn, and the kids who are anxious will be anxious. So um, uh, I think children will will behave the way we expect um, to see them behave. I've been hearing from a lot of parents, though, saying their kids really miss their friends and they miss playing with their friends. So how does that play out when if they go back to school, but you've still got to keep this distance and it's not the same running to the playground or running up to your friends and and chatting and, and hanging out like you did before? I think there'll be some variability in that and the ability to manage it. Um, The idea of a six-year-old sitting in their own little square in the middle of a classroom is very um, sad. Uh, But um, I don't think it's going to roll out entirely that way. Younger children will have to be allowed to play with each other. They're probably more risk to adults than to each other. Um, Older children, you know, the high school age has kind of probably gotten used to this physical distancing and social distancing and will just be glad to see anybody who's a real person. Um, And then there's that kind of, you know, middle ground kids who would love to hug and kiss and uh, roll and uh, play with their friends. And, you know, they'll, they'll have to get used to this new system. But, um, they're also, they tend to be rule followers at that age. And, you know, as long as the rules are clear and, um, you know, people are clear about why those things are necessary, I think kids are going to be pretty, pretty resilient to the change back into school. Do you think we'll see kids, a whole new generation of germaphobes? Oh, no. Um, I mean, it's certainly possible that uh, kids will be really more aware of um you know, all this hand washing and, uh, you know, using various um, products on your hands to keep them clean. Um, You know, I think we'll probably go back to our slovenly ways eventually, but um, it hasn't hurt us at all to do a little more, be a little more conscientious, you know, about not spreading our colds to other people and about really washing our hands and um, probably, you know, that's a good thing. That may be something that continues rather than being problematic. You know, there are some children who will be more anxious. Um, and I think we shouldn't trivialize their anxiety. I think it's really important to say to kids, you know, what do you think it'll be like to go back to school? And sort of let them tell you what their concerns are, what they're worried about. And then kind of helping them to imagine what it'll look like, like who will be taking care of you, who you're hoping to see, what do you think you'll be doing, um, just so kids have a bit of a sense of, of what might happen. Some kids will go back to their old teachers, some not, um, knowing that the social distancing and hand washing and stuff will be really important, you know, even at school, even as it is at home. And I mean, those things... If the family say this is valuable, generally the, the kids get it and will also follow those rules at school. And you mentioned having that conversation. How important is it, to, do you think, then to, to talk about it like that and not maybe in a scary way, but just talk about it, oh, this is something happening to kind of gauge how kids, whatever age, are feeling about it? Yeah, what do you think it'll be like to go back to school? I mean, I think 
kids are used to going back to school. We do this every September. Parents are used to this happening. The difference is now it's a little less predictable, um, but you know, you might have the same teacher. You might not have the same teacher. You might see all the kids that you know, or you might not. But um, you know, just getting kids to think about this and to 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 have a little conversation about whether they're worried or not, or you know, what kinds of things they expect, uh, I think is really really important. That just just overlooking this and letting things float along and say, okay, time to back to school. I don't think that. Um, that that always works because kids do need kind of an invitation sometimes to to say what they're worried about. So um, and that you're sitting there and listening, that you're not you know wandering all over the place and distracted, but you're actually willing to have that conversation. And they're not on their computer. And you know sometimes good to have these conversations in cars or you know in places where you're walking where where you're not so distracted and where you can say you know so what do you think it's going to be like to go back to school on um, whenever the first of June is, um, yeah. All right. Well, good advice. Cause I know people are grappling with this, especially with it being voluntary and not knowing exactly how things are going to look, uh, but, uh, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this. Oh, thanks for asking me. 135 on this Thursday afternoon. So when I left work on Tuesday, the first day of phase two, I saw people sitting at patios, people lined up to get into an Irish pub. But I was also talking to people that day and there were others saying, "Uh, uh-uh, it's too soon. I don't want to rush back in. I'm going to wait a little bit longer before I do that. And that's just talking about restaurants and pubs. Well, some new research done by Research Co. shows that British Columbians, well, While some people are embracing phase two, others are rather hesitant to jump back in. And Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co., is joining me now to talk a bit more about these findings. Thank you so much for being back with us. My pleasure, Gail. Anytime. So what did you ask people? Well, we wanted to ask them how they felt about specific things uh, coming back into their daily lives without a vaccine. Uh, We felt that if you ask people about their level of comfort uh, depending on specific guidelines that I said by the by the BC government or by the health authorities, uh, we weren't going to get a fine read on, on what was happening. And what we see here is essentially the same gender divide that we've had on many things throughout this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, men more likely to jump in and do certain things and women being more cautious about it. And did that surprise you at all? Not really. I mean, having seen what we've been uh, tracking over the past few weeks, you do get a sense of women being more cautious, uh, waiting for certain things to happen, not really likely to jump into the concept of the family bubbles, for instance. Uh, And I think we see the same situation here. There are certain aspects where the numbers are definitely close when it comes to women and men. uh, But there are other things where uh, the numbers are definitely very different. And it's going to lead to very interesting conversations in our kitchen tables Mm. when the man of the house says, I want to go to the gym, I want to do certain things. And the woman goes, well, I'm not, so you're on your own. <laughs> and then I, I guess, too, if, so if you're that, that hesitant that you don't want to set foot, say, and you'll use the gym as the example, then how comfortable are you with the, the person you share your home with going to the gym? Because then they would be, if you're afraid of being exposed to perhaps the virus, they would be exposed to the virus. That's going to create some tension in the home as well. Exactly. I think it's it's uh, really early for a lot of people to go back to certain things. 
Uh, we've seen a little bit of the changes when it comes to restaurants, pubs, or bars, but we haven't really seen specifics on other aspects of our daily lives, particularly gyms. There's been a little bit of a shift when it comes to barber shops, for instance, or salons, uh, which have opened now, and you have all of these instructions that you need to follow. But it's going to be very difficult for somebody to say, I'm fine with all of that, especially if you're going to be coming back into the home after being for so many weeks uh, inside of it. And what about uh, then you asked people as well, so the gyms and and fitness facilities, clearly a a divide there. Uh, Some of the other places, you also asked people about the issue of public transit. Yeah, public transit was a bit of a shock. I thought the numbers weren't going to be as high as they are when it comes to people saying there's no way I'm going to ride on a bus or ride on SkyTrain without a vaccine. Uh, It's 57% for the bus and 55% for SkyTrain, which might seem like a majority and you might be happy about that. But that means that there's more than two out of five people who say, I'm not doing this, not because you have to or not because of a specific issue that you need to deal with that would compel you to hop in but because you're worried about the fact that you can be infected. And, you know, this is essentially a number that we need to continue tracking uh, because uh, in a month from now, two months from now, if we continue to see roughly half of people saying there's no way I'm doing this without vaccines, it's going to be very difficult for the system to survive. Well, I wonder, too, if if the timing of the poll, when you asked people uh, from May 15th to the 17th, I wonder if it would be different now, given that we now have... uh, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam saying, well, actually, if everybody wears a mask, that does help in that you are protecting people from you in case you're spreading uh, the virus. So we've seen TransLink come out today. Uh, they're not mandating masks, but they're recommending people wear masks. They're ramping up cleaning. I wonder if by taking these measures that might change people's opinion. It's definitely something that we want to continue tracking. Uh, We felt it was a good opportunity to ask about this because we had just heard the B.C. government say we're going to start to reopen things. We want to do it cautiously. Uh, What we're measuring more than anything here is how much is the vaccine going to affect the rest of your life? Uh, There might be people there who say there's no way I'm going to a concert again. There's no way I'm going to a sporting event. Certain things will not open soon. But there are others where, especially women and also uh, residents uh, over the age of 55 are saying, I'm going to take my chances. I would rather miss out on a concert or on a live sporting event unless a vaccine is there. Uh, Right. So how did it break down age-wise as far as uh, the different age groups and their level of confidence? Uh, There are a little bit of shifts there that are quite interesting, especially when you look at the level of despair of Generation X. If you're 35 to 54, you're more likely to say yes to everything. You know, there's 46 percent of Generation Xers who say I'm fine going to a music venue. The numbers are lower for millennials and even lower for baby boomers. So on certain issues, you do start to see that situation of a generation that wants to be entertained, that feels that like they've been at home for a longer time and they're willing to take certain chances. We don't see the same thing with baby boomers. Only 30% who say, I would go to a live sporting event as a a spectator uh, without a vaccine, compared to 46% for those age 35 to 54. So uh, maybe a little bit of boredom setting in, and a lot of Generation Xers saying, yes, please get me out of the house. (laughs) And did you get the sense, or did you ask people, when you're asking about something like that, like a sporting event, if they were to start up again, is it people saying that they would be comfortable going to a sporting event with, say, distancing rules or with these new guidelines, or are they suggesting that they would be comfortable going to a sporting event the way it was before the virus? 
Well, what we wanted to track was essentially only the vaccine. You know, without a vaccine, would you consider this? Every venue will have different things that they want to do, and it's definitely going to be cumbersome for live sporting events. We've seen a little bit of that uh, in Germany, where the soccer league has started playing again. There's social distancing on the sidelines. There's uh, also a lot of people who are wearing masks. Nobody has been allowed as far as fans are concerned. And we might be heading into a situation that is similar to that, but it's going to be difficult for somebody who's used to going to these events to uh, deal with the situation. Let's say you want to go to the Whitecaps and you can only use one out of every five seats. If they score a goal, are you going to just jump there and not hug somebody else? It's going to be complicated. (laughs) That sounds perfect to me. <laughs> I like that idea a lot. Um, did anything else stick out for you as far as the findings? And and I do think it's an interesting question with the the confidence level people have once a vaccine is manufactured and then widely distributed. Well, one of the things that we wanted to track was uh, what's what's going to happen when it comes to restaurants, uh, bars, or pubs. Uh, we thought it was there was going to be a larger difference between eating outside and inside. And there's really not that much of a change. There's 71% of BC residents who are comfortable going to a restaurant, pub, or bar right now without a COVID-19 vaccine, and 68% if you're going to a place that is only serving food indoors. So, you know, all of this discussion about, well, if it's outside, I'll do it. Right now, there's not a lot of statistical difference between the two. And again, we see specific patterns. Men more likely to say, yes, take me to the pub. Generation X saying, yes, I need to get out of the house. Hmm. Uh, Did you ask people about air travel or is that a whole different study? We haven't done anything on air travel yet. I think there's definitely an appetite to try to figure out what is going to be happening, especially now that we have many airlines that are saying, well, the middle seat is no longer going to be taken. So it's going to be more comfortable than it used, than it used to be just a few months ago. But we also need to figure out if this votes well for the survival of this industry. If you have a restaurant where you can only sit 50% of the people, you still need to pay 100% of the rent. And it's going to be similar with airlines. You're still paying for all of that fuel, even if you have certain seats that are unavailable. Hmm, Interesting findings, uh, definitely. Mario, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. My pleasure, Jill. That is Mario Conseco. He is the president of Research Co. Want to hear from you on this. Where would you fall? Thanks for being with us. You may have been hearing or heard about this story on the news. It involves Shopify and employees at Shopify will be continuing to work from home even after the pandemic. The booming Canadian tech giant has announced that they are moving to a digital type workforce and they plan, even though they are headquartered in Ottawa, they have more than 5,000 employees in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver and Waterloo. They are going to keep the offices closed until at least the end of 2021 and they are preparing for a permanent move to work from home. Could this be just the start and will we see other tech giants and other companies doing this? Uh, I know that uh, Facebook has also been talking about this, suggesting that they are looking at ways to have hubs rather than big centrified places for the workforce. Let's bring in Rebecca Pollock, Assistant Professor, Organizational Behavior and Human Resource Division at UB. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, What's your response uh, looking at Shopify, this pretty big company, saying we're going digital by default? Yeah, so I think this was kind of inevitable after offices started to close down after the pandemic. You know, I think um, the 
British Columbia government is also giving suggestions that uh, workplaces need to implement physical distancing. And if that's not possible, putting up barriers. So many places know that they can't implement those new changes for physical distancing. And one of the best ways to do that now is really to continue to allow workers to uh, work from home. And do you think this is something then because of the pandemic, people were kind of thrown into this and maybe a company had a plan to get more employees working from home, but because it happened so quickly that they were able to find solutions and find out that, hey, maybe this works all right. Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting because a lot of uh, the executives, I think Shopify's uh, CEO in particular had mentioned this is something that they had been thinking about. It was something that was in the works. Uh, It was Further, you know, this kind of distance to working setup was something that they had been thinking about much further down the road in the future, maybe even 2030. Uh, but because of the pandemic, it really sped things up and um, made them think about how to do that now. And it seems to be even right now with so many people working from home that wouldn't be if if we weren't in this scenario with the pandemic, there still seems to be this worry, I think, from some management that you're not going to get as much work if someone's at home, they're going to be lazy or they're going to maybe knock off early. Is there any what do you say to people that, that have that suspicion or think that their employees would take advantage of that? Yeah, that's uh, one of these misconceptions that I think uh, there have been plenty of studies right now. Granted, these studies were done before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, but all of these studies, the vast majority have shown that this concern about reduced productivity really shouldn't be a concern. If anything, employees um, can actually tend to work more. Um, There's increased productivity, uh, reduced employee stress. Um, actually increased uh, chances for innovation and creativity as well. And so uh, there's, you know, this concern that employees will actually work less is something that organizations shouldn't be too worried about. But that being said, uh, organizations really need to think about what it is that they're implementing uh, when these types of work-from-home solutions are being implemented without careful thought and without training managers on how to manage remote workers. Uh, yes, then things, then problems can definitely arise. Is that the biggest downfall that, that you see, or what else, or, or what are some of the concerns or things that really need to be addressed up front? I think one of the biggest issues uh, that organizations really need to think about uh, is employee loneliness and feelings of isolation. So these studies have shown that when employees have worked from home um, two and a half to three days a week, that this, um, this distance can increase people's feelings like they're disconnected from others or disconnected from the organization. Um, But organizations need to anticipate that and think about ways to make employees that are working from home feel connected both to each other as well as to the organization. And I think some of these um, these perks that are getting thrown to the wayside, things like in in office cafeterias or these communal lounges, uh, they can create that virtually. And by thinking ahead and implementing that, they can reduced feelings of loneliness and isolation. Do you think we're going to see more companies go this route? I do. You know, I really think this is just the start. Um, Particularly, you know, we're seeing this now from these tech companies, and they're definitely well positioned to be the leaders in, in making this transition. But I think a lot of smaller organizations will see this, and their employees will want this kind of setup. 
and so in order to continue to attract and retain their employees, they're going to have to think about how to structure their workplaces to mimic what these larger companies are doing. Uh, it's interesting when you mention the isolation, because while for some people I think it sounds great, there, there's going to be employees that don't want to do it. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the really important points as well. Organizations shouldn't be implementing all of these things from a top-down perspective. Uh, Checking in with employees, seeing what it is that's going to make them happy, what's going to keep them engaged, uh, that's going to be really important as we move forward. Uh, We're, we're, you know, we're entering a world where there are completely new norms, uh, new schedules, new uh, expectations. And so as organizations kind of manage these these new paths, uh, making sure that they get employee feedback is going to be really important. All right. We'll leave it there. Rebecca Pollack, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, Rebecca is an assistant professor, organizational behavior and human resource, the human resource division at UBC.